last time when we looked at uh, Nahum in chapter 1, you see the themes of love and of anger and of justice. Today we're looking at chapters 2 and 3. And I want to start off with the fundamental activity of uh, the devil, namely deceit. For that is the power of the devil and that's the chief instrument of the devil. His main game in this fallen world is to tell lies and speaking lies is his native language and we give him power whenever we believe his lies, whenever we accept them and live upon them. Uh, We love to think that we ourselves practice open, honest communication. But of course it's not true, that's just one of the lies, isn't it? In government, in media, salesmen, uh, office politics, social posturing, self-perception, lying is the name of the game. A study done on lying in California some years ago showed that on average the Californians lie once every eight minutes. Uh, because they're Californians uh, and only they would study such a thing. It's doubtful whether they're accurate in their... That's, it was one every eight minutes they could identify. Uh, there are many others, no doubt, that they didn't even identify. So it's not surprising that in our relationship with God, we try to deceive him, just as we try to deceive others, and sadly wind up deceiving ourselves. We declare to him we're not guilty we're guilty of no crime we would say we've done nothing wrong I haven't sinned but remember the words of the New Testament where it says if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us and a couple of verses later if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us it's all got to do with deceit hasn't it? it's got to do with lies to say that I am not sinful or to say that I haven't sinned, it's self-deception and it's calling God a liar because he says we have and he's true. Or we know or think that all is well with the world because there'll be no war. Very famous Neville Chamberlain is recorded having returned from uh, Germany and talking with Hitler to declare at the airstrip peace in our time, waving the leaf, leaving the sheet that he had signed and Hitler had signed saying peace in our time. And of course within a year there was no peace in Europe or the world. We should never desire war. We should always work and, for pray, and pray for hope, for peace. But we must always be prepared and expect there to be warfare. It's a lie that we will have peace in our time. We mustn't imagine that all is well with the world and that God would not bring war on our shores or that God would not wage war against us himself as if he is not the God of hosts, the God of armies, as if God is a pacifist. Ultimately, if you're a pacifist, you're claiming that your morality is higher than God's morality because God clearly goes to war. You're claiming that criminal matters should not be punished for punishing criminals is the same as being in war. It's just civil rather than it's just within a nation as opposed to externally. 
and your claim that God would never judge us or evildoers. And you're claiming that Jesus' death on the cross was unnecessary. Pacifism is not a Christian viewpoint. It never understand the gospel if you're a pacifist. I know. I used to be one as a teenager. And while it is right to hope and long for peace, it's just not true. It's not going to happen. It never will happen until the Lord Jesus returns and this world is put to rights. Another deceit is to imagine that God has no power or to imagine that his power is too limited to reach to me. I can live as if God is not there, for there's nothing he can really do to me. He cannot reach me, he cannot punish me for what I do. Everything in this world is just a matter of cause and effect of human actions and natural processes. If there's a flood, that couldn't be God, that's just natural processes. If there's a famine, that couldn't be God, that's just natural processes. He could never send sickness and drought, fire, famine or flood upon our nation or upon me because he's too limited. He hasn't got the power to do it. It's a lie of the evil one. Or we think that God is no threat. For there's a terrible attitude towards God that you see in the, the Dawkins kind of literature which assumes that God is actually answerable to me rather than me being answerable to God. If God ever comes and asks me what have I done and why have I done it, well then I've got a few questions I'm going to ask him as to what he's done and what it's that attitude which sees that I'm God and he's answerable to me rather than he's God and I'm answerable to him. And so we come back to Nahum, page 946, and the end of Nineveh. For Nineveh was full of these lies and insensitive to God and his ways. Nineveh was powerful, it was wealthy, it was the superpower, the ruler of the world, with armies and weapons and technology and power beyond any of its contemporaries or beyond any empire that had gone before it. Nineveh destroyed the land of Israel and the nation Israel in 722 BC and it ruled over the nation of Judah. It looked invincible, unanswerable to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob for it had conquered his people as nothing had happened to it. But Nahum, chapters 2 and 3, predicts the end of Nineveh. The end that came in 612 BC, quite suddenly, quite startlingly for the ancient world. The end that left that mighty, that mighty city in a ruin, a rubble heap, as it is to this very day, two and a half thousand years later. We have here one of the most striking poetic descriptions in the whole Bible, as the siege and the destruction of Nineveh are graphically predicted. So let's read chapter 2 and then we'll look back through each of the sections. But I read chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches." 
The shield of his mighty men is red. His soldiers are clothed in scarlet. The chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished. The chariots race madly through the streets and rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten to the wall. The siege tower is set up. The river gates are opened. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped. She is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt! Halt! they cry. But none turns back. Plunder the silver. Plunder the gold. There's no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Desolate. Desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is the lion's den? The feeding place of the young lions. Where the lion and the lioness went. Where his cubs were with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions, and I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Firstly, then, we have the siege set up in chapters 2, verses 1 to 6. The attack comes, and notice the reason why it comes in verse 2, because the Lord is restoring Israel. The attackers of Nineveh would most likely never have guessed that they were doing God's work. They were doing the work of Yahweh. They came from the Medians and the Babylonians and the Scythians. They weren't the the worshippers of Yahweh. They possibly never heard of Yahweh. But they came because God was restoring the fortunes of Israel and therefore destroying the kingdom of Assyria. The scarlet of verse 3, the red, may well have been the Medians and their colour because they were the ones leading the the allegiance, the alliance rather, that that conquered Nineveh and brought it to an end. The city of Nineveh was built on the east bank of the Tigris River and had a river called Husser, I don't know how to pronounce it, H-U-S-U-R, flowing through it. Verse 6 refers to the flooding of the city and it uh, it seems to concur with the Greek accounts that the river rose suddenly, causing a stretch of the wall to collapse and thus bringing the palace and the city to an end. Difficult precisely to understand who's opening the sluice gates to have this happen, whether it was the the army and the enemies of, of Nineveh or whether Nineveh tried to open up their own sluice gates, but the point is the city drowned at the height of the flood, at the height of the siege. And so we read in verses 7 to 10 of the sack of the city, There's no mercy, there's no pity in the chaotic havoc wreaked by the conquerors of the city. The fabulous wealth is plundered from the nations. 
over the past centuries of Nineveh's reign, it's now being all plundered out of Nineveh, just as they had plundered it out of other people. And the leaders, well, they also are being carried off. The mistress, the plunder, the silver. For in verses 11 to 13, you see, it's all about a great reversal of fortunes. And it's described directly to Yahweh the Lord. Nineveh, the wild ravaging lion, is itself destroyed and ravaged. For the Lord, in verse 13, is against Nineveh. And when he turns against you, no one stands. You'll be cut off and your messengers will speak no more. Now the message of this fairly graphic poem in chapter 2 is given to us again in chapter 3 as the same thing is recounted with another poem of the same kind. It starts with the taunt over Nineveh as the city of blood and I read chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder. No envy, end to the prey. The crack of the whip, the rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make your nations look upon your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you, and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Are you better than Thebes that sat by the Nile with waters around her, her rampart a sea and water her wall? Cush was her strength. Egypt too, and that without limit. Put, and the Libyans were her helpers. Yet she became an exile. She went into captivity. Her infants were dashed in pieces at the head of every street. For her honoured men lost her... Lot, so her for her honoured men, lots were cast. And all her great men were bound in chains." You also will be drunken. You will go into hiding and you will seek a refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, your troops are women in your midst. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has devoured your bars. Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts. Go into the clay. Tread the water. Take hold of the brick mould. There will the fire devour you. The sword will cut you off 
It will devour you like the locust. Multiply yourselves like the locust. Multiply like the grasshopper. You increased your merchants more than the stars of the heavens. The locust spread its wings and flies away. Your princes are like grasshoppers. Your scribes like clouds of locusts settling on the fence in a day of cold. When the sun rises, they fly away and no one knows where they are. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Well, Nahum's an interesting book in terms of its reading, isn't it? It's, it's one of the great poems of the Bible, although one of the most unpleasant poems of the Bible. It's all about a siege, a warfare, a destruction, but it's about the siege, the warfare and the destruction of the baddies. So you clap your hands in joy that it's come to an end, but it's just powerful image, one image pied upon another image of the downfall of the city. Assyria, of which Nineveh was the capital city, was an awful, militaristic, oppressive regime, similar to the many totalitarian regimes of the 20th century. Stalin, Pol Pot, Argentina under the generals, Chile under Pinochet, Idi Amin, Hitler. And it's similar to the 21st century ones that we see collapsing Syria and Egypt and Libya, that the whole Middle Eastern collapse at the moment. Piles of dead bodies without numbers, kidnapping, torture and killing. It's all happening in but a moment in the fall of these empires, of these kings, of these rulers who rule with injustice and with horror. Here is the seductive prostitution of the world. For wealth and prosperity and power, even peace, blinds our hearts to the corruption and evil upon which such societies can be built. Nations are enslaved. The charms of the witchcraft and sorcery is brought into play here as it describes this powerful, mighty city of Nineveh, which could be used to describe the powerful, mighty nations that were there. You only have to go back a few years and some of the Middle Eastern nations and, and, and governments that are now collapsing in the weight of huge corruption were our allies that we were supporting and upholding. But now, of course, we're washing our hands of the very people that we supported. Idi Amin was one of the great monsters of the 20th century, trained, supported and put in position by the British government and then turned out to be the monster that he always was. And so, the judgment of God comes upon the city. It is, it is to be treated with shame and contempt in verses 5 to 7. Again, notice, notice though, it is the Lord, Yahweh, that is against Nineveh. He is acting. 
He's acting through the Medes, the Babylonians or the Scythians, but he is acting to bring justice and punishment to the Assyrian city. And as Nineveh acted as a prostitute, so she will be shamed like a prostitute, with shame and filth, seen for what she is, so that people will withdraw, will pull back, will shrink back from her in horror and disgust and shame, wasted is the judgments on their lips. And there'll be no one to mourn for her, no one to grieve for her. And to help you understand this retribution, Nineveh is given the warning of the Egyptian city Thebes in verses 8 to 11 of this chapter. For Thebes too was a mighty city, an invincible city, full of wealth and power, the pelf and power that comes from conquest, sitting on a river like, well, like Nineveh was sitting on a river, in fact, sitting in the river, the River Nile on the Isle in the middle of it, with all known Africa supporting and defending it. It looked absolutely invincible. But then, with astonishing speed, the mighty city of Thebes was besieged destroyed and plundered by none other than the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh. What you did to Thebes is to happen now to you. And if you think you are safe, secure and beyond any way of being overthrown, just think back to what you did to Thebes. For it's coming to you. You too will be destroyed with the same brutality with which you destroyed. Infants will be bashed to death at the head of every street. You see, the noble savage was never very noble. There's this wonderful mythology that we civilised, actually Christianised people in the West imagine that no one would treat another person with such hostility, such barbarity, such unmitigated evil as to bash little babies to death and yet it happens and it will happen and when war is declared man, woman, child nobody is but safe we can have war crime charges like they're being levelled against the Serbian leader at the moment but it hasn't stopped it happening if anything All it shows is that we can reveal the nature of humanity's inhumanity, which is never seen more powerfully than when you come to warfare and to the sacking of a city like Thebes or like Nineveh. And what was done by you will be done to you. The honoured men of the city sold as slaves... And all people hiding and seeking refuge from their enemies. And so in verses 12 through to 19, the last section, we see the inevitable doom that Nineveh is facing. Its strength and might is all show, no substance. And when put to the test, it will collapse like a house of cards. It will not. It cannot stand. And frankly, 
everybody's going to rejoice at its fall. Because as you can see in verse 19, everybody has experienced its unceasing evil. Do you remember seeing the scenes of the journalists when Saddam Hussein was, it was announced that he had been uh, captured? They cheered. And I could understand that. I remember hearing of Pol Pot being uh, uh, captured and killed, died, and my knee-jerk reaction was to say, good. And then I thought, well, hang on, that's not good. The death of no man's good. And yet, having Cambodian friends, it felt good. Do you remember the cheering, the shouting, the street joy over... Uh, over been uh, Laden's capture and killing just recently those who suffer at the hands of it will rejoice at the victory and when Saddam Hussein was executed to my horror the journalist broke out cheering again but I haven't suffered at his hands I haven't experienced the wickedness, as so many people in Iraq did under that monster. Nineveh was a city that brought evil everywhere. Nobody was going to mourn for Nineveh in its downfall and in its collapse. But joy would break out across the ancient world because God was against Nineveh and was destroying it. Well, throughout the centuries, we have seen impenetrable kingdoms collapse overnight. I was travelling at the time at which the wall in Berlin came down. I was only out of contact with the media for about a week, but it had come down by the time I got back in contact with the media. It was there when I left Australia. It wasn't there when I actually kind of connected into the internet next time. It disappeared that quickly. This monument that had stood for 30 years expressing the hostility between the East and the West, this kind of cement and bricks expression of the Iron Curtain, it just came down overnight, didn't it? And you can say with the wisdom of hindsight, yes, it came down because the pressure was building against it for, for years and years before because the whole economic structure that lay behind it, holding it up, was a facade. You can say that in hindsight, but beforehand it didn't look like that. It looked like it was there as a permanent fixture in the heart of humanity and in the people of Berlin. It looked permanent, as indeed the whole... The communist bloc looked permanent, just like the wealth of America and its markets, and it looked permanent until a couple of years ago too, didn't it? As now the struggle to know whether it can continue to afford to run the police of the whole world as it's been trying to do because the economy is told against it. We cannot imagine the sudden collapse of the mighty empires we live under. But the kind of communist empire 
was only from 1919 to 1989. It was only 70 years. For most of us, 70 years is a lifetime. You're born in it, you live in it, and you see Sputnik going over the top and you think the Russians are in control of the world. And yet, Nineveh felt like it controlled the world. And yet, but it's also because we don't reckon with God. For when God is against you, you will not and you cannot stand. You see, the character of God is there for us in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Just turn back the page. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He is a jealous God and an angry God but a just God and a fair God in being slow to anger. He even, excess, he even expresses mercy and kindness, giving people opportunity to repent and to find forgiveness, sending Jonah, calling upon Nineveh to repent, and it did, and he forgave it. But yet in due time, sending just retribution upon a city that doesn't continue to repent. And so he is described in chapter 1, verse 7, as good, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. He knows how to care for his people. He knows how to protect his people. Nineveh attacked and destroyed his people. The Assyrians lived by brutal opposition, opposed to God at enmity with God. And twice we read in chapter 2, chapter 3, God was against them. I am against you. It's quite possible to be opposed to God and to live our lives in opposition to him for many, many years and to enjoy success and conquest, wealth, power, prestige because God is slow to anger. And instead of seeing this slowness to anger as opportunities to stop what we're doing and be thankful that we weren't punished as we deserve, people presume upon it. And so, well, he's never going to touch me. He's never going to punish me. I can do whatever I want. There's no, there's no justice in this world. But God will punish in due time. He will not permanently leave us unpunished. He will in his good time bring the payment that we deserve. And then you have to reckon with the power of God. For chapter 1 verses 3 to 6 reminds us of the power of God. Second half of the chapter of the verse 3. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, the bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. In a fight with God, who do you think is going to win? 
The epistle of Hebrews says, Our God is a consuming fire. There are several times in the Bible that says who God is. Sometimes God is love, God is light. But it also says God is a consuming fire. The same letter said just a little earlier, it's an awful thing, a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Yet for all the delays in justice, the certainties of God's justice must never be underestimated. We don't know the timing, but we can be assured of the certainty. There was a great delay between Adam's sin and the Lord Jesus Christ coming to pay for the penalty of sin. But in his death, we have the certainty of forgiveness. And in his resurrection, the certainty of judgment. Unfortunately, because we feel all is well with the world, we can presume upon the kindness of God's patience. Romans chapter 2 speaks of it in this way. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God's delay is to give us time to repent. But in God's delay, our society says, we can do what we like. God will never punish us. It's okay. I can keep on going as I am. It hasn't happened. It says James 4 warns us of our arrogance, thinking that we control our future. Come, now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and such boasting is evil. My friends, we ignore the certainties of death, of judgment, of forgiveness to our peril, as did Nineveh, which always stands as a rubble heap today, a permanent testimony. For once under the prophet of Jonah they listened and were spared. But under the prophet of Nahum, They didn't listen and were destroyed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the message and assurance and certainty of forgiveness that comes through his death and of judgment that comes through the resurrection. And pray, Heavenly Father, that we may ever listen to your warning and take hold of your patience not for a time of indifference, but for continued repentance and trust in your goodness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.